When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. I'm Ido Volk, Europe correspondent at The New Statesman. It's Monday the 3rd of April, and you're listening to World Review, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to Catherine Kalaidas, Director of Research and Content at the National Hellenic Museum in Chicago, and the author of Holy Russia, Holy War, about the role of the Russian Orthodox Church in the war in Ukraine. Catherine, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I suppose to start off with, the first section of the book is concise, but at the same time, quite a comprehensive history of the Orthodox Church and in how the Russian Orthodox Church came to be. I read it and I could not hope to, I think, give an accurate representation of 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 the history here. And I think probably a lot of our readers will be quite unsure also of how all these different Orthodox churches came to be and how the Russian Orthodox Church in particular comes to be. I'm not expecting you to give the whole history, but can you give us kind of a prissy of how the Russian Orthodox Church emerges as this kind of separate entity in Russia? Yeah, so I think I think the goal, really in the first part of the book, was to provide sort of history through the eyes of another, right? So we tend to have this sort of Western narrative of history, of course, right? History is always centered the cultures they're coming out of. But so the history of the Orthodox Church gets, or the Eastern Christian Church might be a better way of talking about that, it tends to get sidetracked in if you've had an education in Western Europe or North America. But broadly speaking, when we talk about the Orthodox Church and then give it all these national designations, what we're really talking about is the church that existed after Constantine in the eastern half of the Roman Empire, which was predominantly Greek-speaking, right? So the western half of the empire is predominantly Latin-speaking. The eastern half is predominantly Greek-speaking. And over the course of 700 years, those two halves of the former Roman Empire, and in the east, remember, the Roman Empire continues. That kind of gets obscured because we call it the Byzantine Empire, but it's the Roman Empire continuing. They grow apart. They grow apart for cultural reasons. They grow apart for political reasons. They grow apart because the collapse of the empire in the West means that there's growing power being accumulated to the papacy that it is trying to exert on the Eastern churches. 
And so then in the middle of the 11th century, the Bishop of Constantinople, the Archbishop of Constantinople and the Archbishop of Rome, who we call the Patriarch of Constantinople and who we call the Pope, issue mutual excommunications to one another. And we call that the Great Schism. There is a lot of scholarly debate about what that mid-11th century excommunications meant. But I think now the general consensus is that is the beginning of a rupture between the Eastern and Western halves of Christendom that continues to this day. That's the reason. So we now talk about that Western half as the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern half as the Orthodox Church. However, we also tend to give the Orthodox Church these national designations. So we're talking about a group of churches, of national churches that are in communion with one another, of local bishops in communion with one another. The Russian Orthodox Church has its origins in that same sort of 11th century in Kiev, right? So the conversion of the Slavic people happens in Kiev. The center of the Slavic world in the Middle Ages is in Kiev. Over the centuries, as the political power moves to Moscow, the religious power follows, as religious power is oft to do. And ultimately, you have in the early modern period, the Patriarchate of Moscow emerge. And so the Russian Orthodox Church is this sort of, is the Russian manifestation, the Slavic manifestation, one of the Slavic manifestations of the Eastern Christian church that begins under Constantine, that essentially it's takes shape under Constantine. So for, I think, and I'll, I will say this too, for people who have lived most of their lives in the 20th century, it's easy to think of Russia as, you know, predominantly associated with atheistic communism. But for most of Russian history, Russian identity and Russian political and cultural life was deeply tied to the Russian Orthodox church. Yeah, and I suppose if you're kind of moving from the history to the present day, you, I suppose, have to look at the relationship between the church and the state. And I think most relevantly, this comes to be formed during the communist period. You spend a lot of time on the communist period, where, of course, official state policy was completely opposed to, or state ideology was completely opposed to religion, but the state had varyingly hostile relationships with the church at various points. Can you talk about the relationship between the church and the state during the communist period? And then as Russia in particular moves out of communism, how that changes? Yes. Yeah, so initially, in, in the sort of initial aftermath of the communist revolution in Russia, the Bolshevik revolution, the church is persecuted. And at various periods under Stalin, the Russian church is almost obliterated. However, as World War II begins, really, Stalin recognizes the value of the church as an organizing body. He also recognizes that it's, I think that the old saying goes, it's easy to corrupt bishops. It's easy to arrest priests. It's hard to find every pious grandmother, right? So much of the sort of religious life of the church continues among just these sort of pious lay people. And so beginning in the beginning during the Second World War and moving forward, the communist state, the Soviet state works to come to an agreement with the with the Russian Orthodox Church. And ultimately, I think it's fair to say the Russian Orthodox Church becomes an instrument of the communist state. 
And by the 1960s and 70s, the Patriarch of Moscow is like winning awards from the Soviet government and things. Now, that being said, at the same time, the institutional church is very much involved with the Soviet state. You have this sort of smaller church. You have this sort of smaller group of believers who are resisting communism. And so when communism collapses in the early 90s, the Russian church, rightly or wrongly, is one of the last institutions in society that has any real credibility. And so the church, it's not necessarily inevitable that the Russian church would have, would continue, you know, would have come back as a powerful force in Russian life after the fall of communism, but it does. And first under Patriarch Alexis, who's the first major patriarch after the fall of communism, and then especially in 2009, when Patriarch Karel, the current patriarch, comes to the patriarchal throne. And Patriarch Karel is a really complex figure in many ways. There's some very good evidence now that he was his former KGB. But he and Vladimir Putin really formed this alliance that is based on and a reflection of the alliance that existed between the Russian czars and the Orthodox Church in in the pre-communist period, which was itself based on the relationship between the Eastern Roman, the Byzantine emperors, and the Patriarch of Constantinople in the Middle Ages. And in the Orthodox world, this is theologically, this is the idea of symphonia, that the church and state rule the world essentially as co-equals in harmony with each other. The Greek root is the same group root we get symphony from, right? That there's this harmony that comes from that. Today, Russian Orthodox Church, and particularly the church as it has developed in a Karel, is an important part of the Putin regime's propaganda machine, social organizing scheme. This it is reemerged re- as an important part of the Russian state. And so you have a you have an entire section on Patriarch Kirill. Can you talk about him as a as an individual and how he's evolved as as you say, kind of someone who's quite central to Putinism, one of the someone who's willing to offer pretty unconditional support to the Vladimir Putin and kind of official Russian state policy. Yeah, so I think Patriarch Karel, like many of the older clergy in Russia today, is completely, he is, and Vladimir Putin for that matter, right? He's someone who's completely formed in the context of the Soviet state, right? And of that relationship between the Russian church and the Soviet state under communism, And who has, I would argue, a deep appreciation for the ways in which the survival of the church is tied to accommodation to the state. I think that is his fundamental understanding of the institution of the church. I also think that Patriarch Carell is someone who's been influenced by his relationship with American evangelicals. So there was a flood of American evangelical Protestants into Russia at the fall of communism. And they played a significant role in financing the early days of the post-communist Russian Orthodox Church. Patriarch Karel has learned from them, I think, some very important lessons. Lessons that 
it's, this might get me in trouble for saying, but I say things that get me in trouble all the time, but lessons that I think are not dissimilar than probably lessons he learned in the KGB about propaganda, about ways, the ways of you can wield influence globally through certain kinds of propaganda, through certain kinds of moralizing. And so he is, I think, a figure very much built by the, as we all are, figure very much built by the circumstances of his life. I've occasionally had people ask me and ask people who, some people who had, who have been in the Moscow Patriarchate asked about his, does he believe this? Is this really, I don't, I have no desire to be inside his mind and I don't know his heart, but I think he is someone who has, who understands his role to be one of safeguarding the institution fundamentally, right? And he is a, he's a company man. He's a man of, he's a bureaucrat at his core. And I think that influences much of what we see him doing today. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just 12 pounds. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Sports. 
specifically in Ukraine, what has his role in supporting the government in as, as Putin launched the invasion of Ukraine and Kirill has offered often unconditional, full-throated support? What's the kind of religious justification that he offers for this? And does it matter? Is it purely symbolic? Or is that, does the church really have power in Russia and it's, and it's, offer, and it's completely offering that support to the government? I think that those are two, those are two separate questions in some ways. So first, I think Karel has helped been Putin's chief propagandist in many ways in this war and has helped construct the propaganda narrative that Putin has used in this war. And it's twofold, and it's co- I think it's a complex narrative that doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you try to interrogate it. One is that the Russians and Ukrainians are brothers. This is Cain and Abel, right? And that because of that, Ukraine and Russia are essentially the same place, and which is in one way true, right? They have this, they share this, this spiritual heritage that these are one place. And so Russia isn't invading anywhere. Russia is helping in, and Russia is actually driving invaders out, one might argue, in a territory that belongs to it. And those invaders are Western liberalizing factions in Ukraine and abroad. So when he talks, Putin talks about the Nazification of, of Ukraine, and that sort of seamlessly side, slides into Putin, to Kirill's vision of this, lip, this decadent lib, Western liberalism that is attempting to assert itself in Ukraine. And I would say that there is some implicit and frequently explicit anti-Semitism attached to that. So, of course, Zelensky is Jewish. But when you talk about globalists, when you talk about anti-Christian forces in the Slavic context, in the Orthodox context, you're you're always implying, I think also, you're also implying this sort of Jewish connection. In terms of the power of the church, this I think this is another one of those questions that is, is relatively complex. In Russia, as in much of the Orthodox world, rig- religious identification far outpaces religious participation. So people identify as Orthodox at fairly high numbers, even in the post-Soviet bloc, much higher numbers than you might suspect after gener- two, three generations of, athe- of official atheism. However, in Russia, very few people go to church, right? <laughs> like very few people are their very weekly church attendance is on par with, you know, essentially the rest of Europe, which is not super high. However, because of this historic and renewed link between Russian identity and orthodoxy, many people who are just many ordinary Russians who express a regular level of Russian patriotism, they put weight into the words of especially the chief bishop of the Russian Orthodox Church. And there's something something else I'm personally curious about. I think in 2018 or 2019, the oh, I'm sure you're going to correct me, I'm going to get all of this wrong, but the Ukrainian church, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church split from the Russian Orthodox Church and declared itself independent. I apologize if I'm using wrong terminology, which I'm sure I am. Can you talk about the significance of, of this split and what well, why it happens and what it means. I think, so there's a schism, certainly. So what's go, what I think the backstory to this is that you have in the Orthodox world going on what I think you saw in the Islamic world in the early 2000s, which is within the tradition, you have a debate about how the tradition is going to approach liberalism and modernity, right? And in the Orthodox world, the two camps that have really coalesced have coalesced around 
the patriarch of Constantinople, the ecumenical patriarch, who is Greek, like ethnically Greek and culturally Greek, but obviously is in the modern Turkish state, and the patriarch of Moscow, Kural. And these, these kind of two camps have been fighting each other essentially for territory in many ways, right? This is a territorial dispute. Ukraine had, and the I will abridge, the history of the church in Ukraine, particularly during the Soviet period, is relatively complicated. But in 2016, let's say, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church was the major Orthodox Church in Ukraine, and it was autonomous, but not autocephalous. So its bishops had to have the approval of Moscow to be appointed. The Ukrainian government went to the Patriarch of Constantinople and said, basically because of this complex early modern history, can you please establish a church in Ukraine and that is entirely free from Moscow and actually gained its status from Constantinople and the argument is obviously that the original Slavic church, that's how the original Slavic church is established. And so in 2018, the Patriarch of Constantinople did exactly that. He established the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. So at which point you had two Orthodox churches in Ukraine, neither of which recognized the other as legitimate. And this started, this kind of kicked off this most recent battle between, really heated up this battle between the Patriarchate of Moscow and the Patriarchate of Constantinople. There was some horse trading that went on in Western Europe in terms of parishes and dioceses. That did not resolve the schism, certainly. And I think what's really important is the Lithuanian government has now gone and done the same thing. So now they have gone to the Patriarch of Constantinople. Their Orthodox Church currently is tied to Moscow. And they have said, can you set up another, can you set up another church here? This is, this is a kind of an ecclesiological problem for the Orthodox Church. But beyond that, in Ukraine, to this day, the majority of Orthodox believers go to parishes that are under the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. That is the Moscow-aligned church. So it officially broke with Moscow halfway through last year. In this, It broke with Moscow in the sense that they no longer pray for Karel as they're consecrating the Eucharist over the altar. However, allegations that there are still that the Russian government is still using the Ukrainian Orthodox Church for espionage and other things, it's, it, those things are ongoing. And just finally, you, I think, finished the book by arguing that um, Patriarch Kirill should be should be sanctioned. I think there have been attempts to sanction him, and I think the Hungarians blocks a package of EU sanctions by trying to get him excluded. Why do you think Kirill should be sanctioned? Yeah, and I think the UK has sanctioned him now. I think that it is important, particularly since these latest IC warrants that have been issued, I think the culpability of the Russian Orthodox Church in, in the war in Ukraine is important. And it's important to call that out. And it's important to pu punish the leadership. I think in no small part, because Pedro Karel is a man who exercises authority outside the borders of Russia, right? He has bishops and parishes outside of the borders of Russia who are under him. And the to the extent that the global community can marginalize Karel, it applies pressure on the official apparatuses of the Orthodox Church, which are clunky and slow and literally Byzantine in some instances. It applies 
pressure on them to act to punish him in the ways that the church has as well. I go back to the early 2000s and what was going on in the Islamic world. I think that the standards we apply when, when radical politicized versions of Islam were causing violence. There was this constant drone from certain people in the West for, for moderate Muslims to say and do something. Officially, that's really hard to do in Islam because of the nature of the way, the sort of organization of, of Islamic, um, I guess ecclesiology is the wrong word, but the sort of parallels with that. It's actually the Orthodox world, for all its trouble, does have mechanisms to officially punish and sanction hierarchs. And I think it's incumbent to put pressure on those institutions to do that. It's important for the global community to marginalize Karel as much as possible because he is someone who wields power outside his borders. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. No, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. This has been World Review from New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a nice review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. I'm Ida Vok. Thanks for listening and until next time.